we are in part four of our Being Jesus series, and you're going to need a Bible this morning. So take out uh, your Bible, just set it on your lap. We're going to be covering a little bit of material uh, in a little bit. Uh, if you did get a handout sheet, if you are in one of our sanctuaries and you got one of these handout sheets, I just want to draw your attention to the fact that they're wrong. Uh, they are, they are wrong, not because of anyone else, but me, I flipped things on them and changed it. So it has next week's fill in the blank as opposed to this week. So when I share my little intro material, uh, at the beginning here, you're going to just have to take notes on your own. I don't fill in any of the other information for you. So we are in a message entitled a stage set for a star. And I just want to begin with just a few simple phrases. In the beginning, we were in the heart of God. Do you believe that? In the beginning, we were in the heart of God. Also, it is true that in the beginning, we were going to fail. Now, why would we fail? It's because we are not God. There is one God and we are not him. Therefore, it was always the way that we were going to fail. However, the third statement is equally true. God was always going to save. The very premise is that God was going to demonstrate his love for us somehow, some way. And you cannot know that he is a deliverer unless there is something to be delivered from. You cannot know he is a rescuer unless there is danger. You cannot understand the full depth of his love until there is an expression of that love. So in the beginning, God loved us. In the beginning, he knew we would fail. And in the beginning, he knew he would save Therefore, write this down, redemption wasn't plan B. Redemption wasn't plan B. It was always the plan. There was always going to be a time when God was going to rescue his people. So if you see yourself maybe as a bit of a failure, know this. We have always been that and that is how we were designed and God works with that. He has never worked with anyone that was perfect other than his son, Jesus Christ. God has never had anyone ultimately righteous. He has never had any saint that he used to change the world that had everything nailed down. So if you are broken, if you are regular, if you are average, you are in the right place because God's family is made up of broken people. Today's message is all encouragement, uh, just as a quick show of hands. And, and if you're with family today and you feel a little bit nervous about this, you can sit this one out. I get it. All right. But for the rest of you that have a bit of a boldness in you, I would just like a show of hands. How many of you have a crazy dysfunctional family? All right. Praise God. That's pretty much everybody. Okay. So all you that didn't raise your hands, we know they're sitting next to you. I understand that. All right. So after today's message, what you're going to find out is as screwed up as you are and your family is. Wow. Wait till you see the Messiah's family line. It is ridiculous. And so we are going to be diving into some genealogies today. And that sounds horribly lame. And I'll explain to you why it's not. Let's take a look at Matthew chapter one, verse one, just to get us a start here. I'm going to be covering all four Gospels in this series, as you know. So two of those Gospels have genealogies. I'm only going to make three points about Luke's 
and we'll spend the majority of our time in Matthew. So just to begin with, let me show you what we're walking into. It begins something like this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac the father of Jacob and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar and Perez the father of Hezron and Hezron the father of Ram and Ram the father of Amminadab and can we all agree these are stupid names? All right, then anybody bored yet? That's kind of the point you start reading this and normally if you're going to read this on your own You'd look and go. Oh good. I can jump to chapter two And you just scoot on over right? Because no one's really going to read this list Not only that, but if you're talking about trying to make a bestseller don't start your book with a genealogy Right, I mean we start the whole new testament and automatically to list if so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so right And we look at that and we go. There's no way I care about any of this stuff Ah, you would have missed it. You would have missed so much richness So let's talk a little bit about how genealogies are put together First of all, if there was ever a people group on the face of this earth that valued lineage It's the Jewish people. Why? Even the virtue of being a Jew has to be proved. Let me give you an example. There was a dark time in Israel's history where uh, after the nation had split into two and they had fallen into sin and rebellion, God wiped them out. He knocked out the north in 722 BC by the Assyrians. He knocked out the south, the king city. Jerusalem was overtaken and they were deported out of their land in 586 BC. This was the great crushing blow to the Israeli people. When they were allowed to go back, they came back with a bunch of different leaders. One of them was by the name of Ezra. In his book, he listed out and said, now that we're all back in the land, let's take a look at everybody's role and see who are legitimate Jews that get to live here. Three families are written down that because they couldn't prove it in writing, they were removed as polluted. Understand the power of lineage in writing, being able to prove who you come from is critical to the Jewish people. Of course, they have genealogies. If you're going to make such a statement as you have found the Messiah that the Jewish people have been waiting for, the one that was to fall in line with King David's throne, you better be able to prove it in writing. So it launches off with a genealogy. If you cannot prove who you are and where you came from, not only are you not allowed as a Jew, but you will never be anything like a priest. You have to be related to Aaron in order to be a priest. You are no longer allowed to have inheritance unless you can prove it. You cannot have land rights unless you can show your tie to a specific tribal allotment. So if we're going to jump into the mindset of the ancient Jewish people, genealogies are extraordinary. Now, they're not all written the way that we would normally write them. They skip people. As a matter of fact, you're going to see that they'll maybe mention two or three, maybe four names, and it jumped 400 years. 
in Matthew's genealogy alone, it covers 1800 years. That's a lot. Now Luke's is even further. It goes all the way back to Adam. So you have Adam to Jesus. How many years is that? We don't even know how many years that is. But they skip people and you go, wait, 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 you can't just skip people. I thought you had to prove it. They organize their material for memorization. Are you going to memorize every single person? No, of course not. As a matter of fact, Matthew's genealogy is organized into three groups of 14 people. Three groups of 14 people. That was for easy memorization. And the point was this. If you're a Jewish believer and you wanted to talk to your Jewish neighbor and say that Jesus is a Messiah, they would say, prove it. You would rattle off from memory this list. We are way before the printing press, people. We are way before anyone had access to be reading this stuff and to show it to their neighbors. You had to have it all in your mind. So they would only hit the highlights of people that other ones would recognize. So when you read a genealogy, it is not exact. It is not detailed. It is not everybody. It is basically a symbol that says, if we had time, I could fill in the gaps for you, but we don't need to go there right now. A couple other things that are interesting about genealogies with the Jews. Women were not normally mentioned. Remember, we're going into the ancient world. And in the ancient world, women were treated horribly. Their view of them was that they were property. They were not allowed to be a legal witness. They were not considered people in the society the same way that men were. Therefore, there was no point in talking about your foremother. It was always your forefather. And whenever you hear father of, remember that's synonymous with forefather of, but it was always the guys. But all of a sudden we jump into the book of Matthew and we see five women listed, five very unusual women listed into this genealogy. Why? You're going to find that because of who they are, there might be some deep pieces that you might need to know. We'll get to those. Now, let me explain why some books have a genealogy and some don't. It's actually very practical. We have four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew has one. Luke has one. Why? Because Matthew's proving that Jesus Christ is the Jewish king. He has one. Luke is proving that Jesus is the next Adam the every man, the one who died for the sins of the whole world that we can relate to. So he has one. Why not Mark? One of Mark's major points in writing his gospel is to explain that Jesus Christ is the perfect servant of God, the perfect slave of God. Do slaves have genealogies? No, of course they don't. That's why he doesn't include one. What about John? Why doesn't John have one? He's trying to prove that Jesus is the son of God. Well, he kind of does have one. It goes like this. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. There you go. He's God. We're moving on. That's it. Nothing super complicated about that, right? So the genealogies are inserted for very specific reasons. All right. Last thing that we need to know before we dive into these. The two genealogies are different. That's weird. 
because we're talking about the same guy. If we're talking about Jesus Christ in one and Jesus Christ in the other, don't you think they have the same family line? But they don't. Matthew and Luke start out the same, but by the time they move past King David, only two names are the same. They deviate so extreme that scholars have wondered for the longest time how in the world that is possible and what were they trying to say. They knew about each other. Why did they locate and track on two different genealogies? We don't know. But there are two major guesses as to why. Probably the oldest guess and the one that I still adhere to even though it has tremendous difficulties is that Matthew tracks Joseph's line and Luke tracks Mary's line. Why is that important? Well, because they're both related to Jesus. Matthew would need what Joseph's line for proving that he is legal for the throne. Whereas Luke would be more concerned about physical lineage. All right. So that's my view. There are a lot of problems with it. I get that. Here's your other guess. One covers Jesus's kingly line, the other one, his physical descendant line. Now, there are some serious troubles with that, but regardless of why they included it, know this, they included the people they included for a very specific reason to show you that God has worked all through history to lay a stage set for the Messiah. And that's, of course, where we pick it up. If you haven't turned there already, go ahead and turn to Matthew 1, 1. Let me just give you the three highlights from Luke's genealogy. Like I told you, they're similar, but they're not the same. Luke starts out slightly different, and he covers some people beyond Abraham. Matthew just wants to go back to the first Jew, and he's like, we're good. Abraham's fine. Whereas Luke says, no, 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 no. We're going all the way back to Adam. So you're going to see a little bit of that. Let me show you three things that are interesting about his. The first one is how it begins. His genealogy begins with this. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Now, did you know Jesus was 30 when he started his ministry? If you did, you got it from that. That's it. That's the only place that it mentions it. So why does he mention that he's about 30 when he starts his ministry? There's probably two reasons. First one is because in the Jewish mindset, 30 was the age of maturity for a man to enter into ministry. Now you could go in before that, but if you were a Levite, a special priest helper, you didn't start before 30. That was, you went from 30 to 50. That was kind of your age range to minister before God in that way. A lot of people in the Bible didn't get rolling till they're 30. Jesus being the perfection of fulfilling the law did everything right all the way through his life. Why? Not only in honor to his father, but so he could switch with you when your terrible life is traded with his and you get all his perfection. So the more and more we read about the perfection of Jesus Christ, know that that is being put on your account if you are a believer in him. Second reason is more conjecture, but I think it's interesting. How is it possible 
that the most influential figure in the entire world's existence is in obscurity for the first 30 years. How do you not have material about the biggest deal ever? All we have is his birth narrative and one story of him being 12. Other than that, we're all of a sudden at 30. What was Jesus doing for the first 30 years of his life? Well, according to tradition, his stepdad, Joseph, died early. Now, remember, Jesus had four brothers and at least two sisters. So we have at least seven kids in the family. And now we have a single mom in a culture where what? Women don't just get to work and provide for their families. So who takes care of the whole family? The firstborn. Who's that? It's Jesus. For the first 30 years of his life, the highest probability is Jesus lived a normal existence of providing for his entire family. Would we look at this and we go, man, yeah, Jesus, uh, he got to do all the fancy stuff and he got to do the miracles and this and that. He is absolutely silent for 30 years doing a job every day that's the same as the day before. And what did he do? He worried about paying the bills. And what else did he do? He made sure to take care of his crazy brothers and sisters. What else did he do? Watch over mom. So all that weight shifting on a young man, all of that was on Jesus. He lived out his gospel in everyday existence. By the time he rolls out at 30 years old, nobody even knew he was special because he did what everybody else did. Then they found out that he was the Messiah, that he had been living under the radar that entire time. Second thing Luke mentions to us is in the next verse. It says, being a son, Jesus was, as was supposed of Joseph, the son of Heli. Why is that important? He just marked out the fact that he wasn't really Joseph's blood son. How do we know that? Holy Spirit skipped him. Is that important? Yeah. As a matter of fact, you're going to find out that in the lineage of Joseph, this is critical, there's one guy named Jeconiah. And you're like, okay, he has a dumb name. I get it. What? Jeconiah has a curse on him. Because of what he did before God, he had a curse that said none of his lineage would be ultimately on the throne. Well, that's kind of weird because Jesus has him in his history. Oh, that's right. The Holy Spirit bypassed Joseph completely in blood relation used all of his status, used all of his legal rights, used all of his name and title, but didn't use any of his blood. And he bypassed him and allowed Jesus to slide right into the line of King David and upholding the curse that was on one man. Last piece, he said, listen to these names and tell me if you can recognize any of these in Jesus's history. He was the son of Abraham, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Recognize any of those names? Man, if you look at that, you're like, man, he had all the cool people. He had like Enoch, the guy that didn't die. You remember that? He was walking with God and then boof, he's gone. I mean, that's the whole God catches him up in a whirlwind kind of idea. I mean, Enoch was so close with God 
that he just disappeared one day. There's only two guys that never died in the Bible. Enoch's one of them. Elijah taken up in a chariot of fire is the other one. One of them is Jesus's line. He has the oldest dude that ever lived in his line. That's cool. Methuselah, oldest man ever that lived on this planet. He's in his line. You look and you go, man, they also had, had, uh, oh, him, that guy, Seth. He's the one where people started to call on the name of God again. Man, his, his line is awesome. And then we get to Matthew. Turn with me to Matthew 1. It looks a little bit different. So Matthew's trying to prove that Jesus is the king. So he's going to talk a lot about kings. As a matter of fact, you see in his line, king after king after king after king. Are they all good? No, they're wicked, terrible, screwed up, really bad guys. Now, there's a few good ones in there that kind of get sprinkled in, but mostly it's bad guys. But then he mentions, as I told you, five women. Who are these women? Well, let's take a look at them. Tamar. Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. What's unusual about these girls? Well, a couple things. You're going to hear their story in a moment, but let me just give you the basic overview. All of them were surrounded in controversy. All of them had very odd questions about their lifestyles. Why would Matthew do that? Well, he actually borrowed a bunch of his history from the Old Testament. So the Old Testament actually locked them down as being legit. So Matthew said, hey, you knew they were legit and there was weird stuff going on. So when I tell you about a virgin birth with Mary, hey, don't look at me twice. You understand? He set the whole tone. If you will accept Rahab, if you will accept Tamar, if you will accept Bathsheba, If you will accept Ruth, are you really going to question Mary? Are you kidding me? Because he knows what he's about to say is impossible and unbelievable. The other interesting thing about those women is that all but Mary have Gentile tie-in, which means they're non-Jews. Why would you include a non-Jew into a Jewish lineage that's proving it's purely Jewish. That's kind of weird, don't you think? Tamar was a Canaanite, right? Uh, Ruth was a Moabitess. Uh, Bathsheba was a Jew married to a Hittite. Rahab was a Canaanite. They're not pure Jewish. So what in the world are they doing in the line? Well, because of the Abrahamic covenant, God promised Abraham that when he was going to save the world, it was not just for the Jews. And so he sprinkled a few in there here and there to prove his point. All right, let's take a look at what it says. Matthew 1, 1 says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. You see it? Did you miss it? Something awesome right there. Ah, you missed it. Okay. And the reason why I know you missed it is because I missed it. All right. The genealogy of the book of Jesus Christ. You go, okay, whatever. It's a guy's history. Ah, you know what it says in Greek? Because the phrase that he uses in Greek is only used one other place in the Bible. Here's what it says in Greek. The book of origins of Jesus Christ. Where have you ever heard that before? Genesis. 
It's the exact same phrase as Genesis. Why is that important? Because in the beginning was the word and the word created all of reality. And here comes the word again to recreate true humanity. What you find is the book of origins in Genesis and the book of origins here in Matthew. And you see a tie-in that God came and made and now he's remaking. Right here, every Jew was supposed to have a little bit of alarm go off in his head and go, wait a second, we're going back to Genesis right here, right now. Because with Jesus, all things have become new. Make sense? All right. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Remember, King David's the main concern because God promised him the Messiah would come through his line. So you got to prove that. The son of Abraham, got to be a Jew, otherwise we're not even having this conversation, right? And Abraham was the father of Isaac. Real quick question for you. Those of you that know the history of the Bible, was Isaac Abraham's only son? No, was he his firstborn son? No, how weird that the Jews are obsessed with this whole firstborn thing and yet the first Jew has a son and the promised kid is not the firstborn. Why? Do you remember the story? Well, let me tell you. Here's the story, all right? So you got two super old people. Remember I told you before, and this is our mantra, if the Bible says you're old, you're old. They were super old because the Bible says they were old. And they're way past ever having any kids. And God said to them, I'm going to do a miracle and you will have a child and your children descendants will be as numerous as the sand of the seashore. Meaning you couldn't even count them all, right? Well, that's kind of impossible. So they decided to trust God for a little bit. God was late on his answer. Have you ever had a prayer request that God just didn't show up on time? Have you ever noticed that? God's really late. His clock seems to be way later than ours. So they decided to help him out. What happens when you try to help out God? You screw it up. So they decided to help out God. And so Sarah comes up with a brilliant plan. Her plan is let me grab my maidservant, a girl by the name of Hagar. Right there should have been an indicator. What a horrible name for a woman. Grabs Hagar, this young lady, hopefully there was something better than her name. She comes in and she hooks up with Abraham. They have a kid, Abraham's firstborn son named Ishmael. Now that's critical because was Ishmael blessed? Yeah, actually he was. Did he have descendants as numerous as a seashore? Yeah, they're called the Arab people. Are there a lot of Arab people in the world? I don't know, maybe the whole Middle East, right? Okay, awesome. Abraham's line became numerous, but he wasn't the promised child. Why? Because somebody hijacked that one. God said, let me be God. Let me do what I need to do. And he brought about a miracle child through Sarah, like God was always going to do before they tried to help him out. Brings in Isaac. Isaac is the promised child through whom all the Jews come. Are there a lot of Jews in the world throughout history? Yeah, you're not going to be able to count them all. So now you have all the Arab people and all the Jewish people coming from one guy. Good thing they all get along. 
That's weird. Brothers arguing? Odd. Strange how that works out. So right off the bat, we see that there was an oddity right at the beginning of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. He didn't go with the obvious. He went with the supernatural. He went with a miracle child. All right. Then it says this. And Isaac was the father of Jacob. Was Jacob a good guy? No. No. Right off the bat. What what does Jacob mean? Anybody know? Deceiver. Awesome. Name your kid deceiver. See what happens. Find out if that's going to go well for him. All right. So deceiver, check this out. This kid is crooked as the day is long. He deceives his father. He deceives his brother. He's the one that's stealing everybody's birthright and their blessing. And his mom's leading him in the corruption. And this kid is walking crooked all the time. He works for a crooked guy and then is crooked against him. And it all gets mixed up and messed up. He walks crooked his whole life until he wrestles with God. You remember that? And it says the angel of the Lord wrestled with him all the way until what? God broke his hip. And once he broke him and he walked crooked, he started walking straight. You know what I mean? Then all of a sudden he's normal and he starts walking with God for the most part. And God changes his name from Jacob to Israel. And now all of a sudden we have the beginning of a nation. It says, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. How many boys did Jacob have? Twelve, the twelve tribes of Israel. They all had little special things. Reuben was the oldest. Levi was the one all the priestly helpers were going to come from. So who was Judah? Judah's the one where all the kings were going to come from. And you go, man, he must have been awesome. Nope, loser. Here's what you know about Judah. Do you remember that there was a little brother by the name of Joseph? He had a technicolor dream coat. You remember him? All right. How much did his brothers like him? No, not at all. They hated his guts. So they decide they're going to kill him. Listen to Judah's brilliant plan. Hey, guys, real quick. Hold up. Hold up. Before you kill him. Real quick. You realize if we just kill him, we don't get any money, right? So you guys, why don't we just sell him into slavery? Then we can at least get rid of him and get cash in our pocket. That's this guy. Thanks, buddy. That's awesome. He's the one that learned how to make money off of his brother while getting rid of him. That's the kingly line guy. And you go, man, well, okay, well, he started out bad. And then comes the next story. It says, and Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah. That's twin boys. And who did he have him through? The first woman in our genealogy, Tamar. You want to hear this story? Sure you do. As I told you, I'll clean it up. We don't have youth today. All right? So here we go. This is how the story goes. Everyone, I need you to fill in the gaps wherever I'm going to leave them. All right? So here's what happens. It starts out that Judah, who is... In the first family of the Jewish people, he's supposed to marry within his tribe. Of course he doesn't. He marries a Canaanite woman. They have three boys, three losers. These three boys are terrible. The first one, the oldest boy, marries a girl by the name of Tamar. That's the girl in our story. He is so wicked and so bad, it says, God just killed him. Now, how, how bad do you have to be to where God's like, yeah, no, we're not doing that and just squishes you. I mean, it's, 
I mean, there's a lot of wicked people in the world, and God was just like, no, no, you're not going to live. Sorry. Then, according to Jewish law, and I know this is creepy, please don't do this in your own family. According to Jewish law, if oldest brother dies without any kids, next brother in line marries the widow and has babies through her so that the older brother's family line can continue, right? Like I said, makes for a complicated Christmas. Let's not do that. So second brother moves into line, marries Tamar, but he only uses her and refuses to have children through her. So God kills him. Another one. Seriously? How do you feel as a dad when your boys, God is like, I hate them all. (laughs) Kills one, kills the other. Now we got the last one. The last one's too young to get married. So what the dad, the father-in-law literally says to Tamar, Hey, I need you to wait around the house till he grows up for a little while and then you can marry him too. Now that's a horrible plan. This whole thing is terrible. So she lives as a widow quietly in submission to this whole stupid plan. And then finally the boy gets old enough. Does she get to marry him? No. They pull a fast one on her again and she's alone. Well, now she's had it. Well, sure enough, it comes a day when Judah's wife dies. So he decides to feel a little bit better a little later on. He decides to go to town and visit a buddy. All right. Now his buddy and he, maybe they're going to have a couple drinks. I don't know. But when they go into town, Tamar knows everything about this guy. She's lived with this guy forever. It's her father-in-law. She takes off her widow's garments, puts on the outfit of a prostitute and runs on ahead of them, hangs out at the city gate where she catches her father-in-law's eyes. Uh Uh-oh, this story's going down. Then they make a business transaction. The business transaction is this. I'll give you a goat. That's literally the transaction. I kid you not. And what's funny is the argument is, well, how do I know you're going to bring me a goat? And he's like, "Uh, what do you want me to do? She's like, I need collateral, dude. So he hands her his personal effects so that she's guaranteed that they'll bring a goat later. All right. I know this whole thing is weird. All right. So then business transaction finishes and she puts on her widow gear and goes back home. Guess what? She's pregnant with twins. Three months later, they find out, uh uh-oh, she's pregnant, but she's a widow. She must have done something wrong. Judah, father-in-law, what do you think we should do with her? He said, I'd kill her. Thanks, dude. That's awesome. She said, you know what? That's cool. You can kill me as soon as you realize the father of the baby owns these items and hands out his personal effects. Oh, he didn't see that coming. And he said, and quote, she is more righteous than I. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You think so? All right, buddy. And that's how these babies come about. Now I'm just suggesting to you that whatever your family line is like, It's probably not as messed up as Jesus's because we haven't even got started yet. Let's keep moving on. It says, and Perez was the father of Hezron and Hezron was the father of Ram and Ram, the father of Aminadab and Aminadab, by the way, the father-in-law of Aaron, the priest, Moses's brother is the father of Nashon and Nashon, the father of Solomon and Solomon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Wait, what? Rahab? 
what did she do for a living? Oh, she was an innkeeper, right? No. No, she was not. Come on now. Rahab lived in a city called Jericho. Jericho is the famous city where the walls came tumbling down. She had more faith than all Israel combined. God had already been working on her. She lived up on a tower on the edge of the wall. And some spies came in from uh, the Israeli people, uh, Joshua had sent spies to go find out if there was any way they could take the city. And they found out there wasn't, but while they're in there, they almost got caught. So they decided to show up in her place, which is an interesting choice. And so she hides them because no one gets in her house without paying. So they go in, they hide in her place. She says, promise me, I know your God is going to destroy my city. I have that much faith in your God. Whether you're nervous or not, I'm not nervous. I already know your God is mighty. So I tell you, swear to me today that when God takes a city, you will let me live. They said, we swear to you, tie a scarlet cord around the outside of your window. She did so, let him down through the window to escape. And when God caused the walls to tumble down, she was rescued and protected and brought into Israel and was considered respectable from that moment forward. But understand, she did not start real flashy, a little sketchy. It says this, and Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. You know Ruth? Yeah. All right, she's awesome. Here we go. Ruth is a Moabitess. That means she's not from Israel. She's from the nation of Moab. Do anyone know where the Moab people came from? Right. The Ammonites and the Moabites were two brothers that were born out of incest from Abram's nephew Lot. Fantastic background there. So she was considered cursed. She was considered a bad people group. But somehow she gets married into a Jewish family. They came into her territory. Her husband marries her, then he dies. There's another girl that was a Moabitess. Her husband dies. The two brothers die. They then decide, are they going to stick with mother-in-law Naomi or not? Ruth does. She goes back to Israel. And when she comes into Israel, she is despised. She is one of the hated groups of people. Remember, bloodline is everything and she's not a Jew. So they would make fun of her. They would keep her on low status because there was even a curse on the Moabite people. God said, because the Moabites didn't help Israel in their desert wandering, may their children be cursed to the 10th generation to not even be around me. She was from that group. How in the world did she get here? Because an amazing man by the name of Boaz, a Jewish man, stepped in the gap, protected her and her mother-in-law, and they were a successful, healthy family because they were faithful to God. Now, finally, we're starting to get some health going. But the story's not done. And Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David the king. Oh, good, we're at least at a king of kings, and he did everything right, right? Oh, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Doesn't even mention Bathsheba's name. Why? Because he wanted to point out the shame. Oh, aren't you? Wait, wait, wait. Uh, you're the wife of Uriah. Why would he even say that? I don't know, David. Where did Uriah go? I don't know. One day he just didn't show up for work. 
dude, you killed him to get his wife. Are you kidding me? The high-ranking king, the, the best guy ever. Hey, the apple of God's eye, a man after God's own heart. Not only has adultery, but he kills the husband just to get her. That's right there. Is that in your family line too? No, of course not. It moves on. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. That's when the whole nation fell into disrepair. The whole nation split into two, north and south, from that moment forward. And bad king after bad king after bad king happened. Let's jump down to verse 11. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon, there's where all their hopes died. They were captured by the Babylon, Babylonians and the throne of David went empty and all their hopes were crushed. Would they ever get back? They did. Go down to verse 16. Methan was the father of Jacob and Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all generations from Abraham to David were 14, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14, from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14. You know what the point of the message is? I don't care where you came from, and neither does God. You got a messed up family? You got a bad past? Welcome to the family. It doesn't matter who your parents were. It doesn't matter what type of failure you were. It matters who you are today in Jesus Christ. It does not matter how many mistakes you've made and what type of horrible disrepair your life has been in in the past. I get it. You're broken. God knew you were broken. That didn't change his love for you. And so many of us sit there frozen in our rooms, knowing that we are to be like Jesus, just like the series says, you know, that all this year and next year, I'm going to be promoting. You need to be just like Jesus going out boldly, ministering to people, caring for people, doing all the things that Jesus did. And you're going to sit in fear and paralysis in your room because you don't think you're worthy. Guess what? None of us are worthy. I can tell you this right now. I know the majority of all pastors in this area. I can probably find something in every one of them that disqualifies them for ministry. There is no difference between the people on stage and the people sitting in the chair. The bottom line is we are all called to get out there and do it. Well, I'm not good enough. Nobody's good enough. And you're never going to be good enough. That's why the glory doesn't go to you. It goes to God because he's using broken, messed up, crazy, confused people that have doubts and fears to make his kingdom. The thing that was so glorious about the disciples is they were average, ordinary, unschooled men and God made them into the apostles that changed the world. That's what he does with regular people. If you can hear my voice and you love Jesus, you are qualified. 
Why? Because it is not you. It will never be you. It's always him in you. We are but jars of clay, but we are filled with the most precious, beautiful, Holy Spirit power that you could ever imagine. We have not even scratched the surface of our new nature in Jesus because he who the Son sets free will be free indeed. And Jesus says to us, come to me. All you who are screwed up. And I'll make you something. So, if you are hurt, broken, lost and confused. But you know one thing. And that is you know Jesus. You are more than qualified. It is your mandate to get out there and be a real, regular person. For Jesus Christ. Let him do the heavy lifting. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for a beautiful walk into this recording of how through your son Jesus all things became new. God, I just pray that you would light us aflame, light us afire, Lord, that we might go out and burn for the world to see, not because we have it all nailed down, not because we're brilliant, not because we have it all right, but because, God, you are great and you are wonderful and you are mighty and you are perfect and you are holy. And when you come into someone as weak as us, Lord, the more weak, the better glory. And so, God, I just pray that all of us who cannot handle it on our own, that is more glory to you be glorified in us raise us up use us for your kingdom purposes in jesus name we pray amen